everybody. Geeks around the world. It is a somber day for us. And uh, welcome to Tumble Vision, the post Steve Jobs uh, edition with super special guest star all the way from somewhere in Australia, Mark Pesci. Uh, this is your host, Heather Gold, uh, and Tumble Vision is, what the hell is Tumble? You want to know? Tumbling is this old Yiddish word. It means somebody, a tumbler or someone who's hired to entertain at a party. It means, um, you know, being able to mix people together so that the so-called audience is in the show. So we like the word tumble um, as a way to describe how you make things connect in a, in a digital networked world, in a post-command control world. And I'm here with fabulous uh, co-hosts. Deb Schultz. Hello, everyone. And you sound terrific. Are you you're in San Francisco? I am. I I just got back from a week in New York, actually, and I'm sitting and watching the sun start to set. Shana Tova. Happy Shana Tova. Happy New Year. Happy Jewish Happy New Year Jews. to all. With yes. us. And, and Kevin Marks. Hello, our other lovely co-host. Hi there. I'm in... Um, Rainy San Jose today. And uh, I am in a car in an alley in the dark in Toronto. That's where the three of us are. Uh, and I just need to add in, she's, she's there alone. <laughs> I did lock the doors, but it's Toronto, so it doesn't so matter so much. Mark Pesci, Toronto's sort of a lot like Melbourne, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Which city are you yeah. in? I'm in Sydney. Which is Sydney. a lot more like Los Angeles. Oh, Sydney right. seemed so sophisticated when I was there. It had the snazziest little little stores with like bespoke yeah. shoes it's, it, and it's all surface. We are surface people. This is why it's so much like Los Angeles. It's really yeah. all skin deep here. I felt like Sydney was very LA when I was there. I agree. Yeah, very much. If you want a little bit more depth, you do go down to Melbourne. The Melbournians know this and they constantly rub it on our faces, but we're so shallow here, we don't care. Isn't Melbourne, Sydney sort of like New York, L.A. in terms of the, the rivalry? rivalry? Yeah, almost a bit more like New York, Boston, and that Sydney simply mm. doesn't acknowledge the fact that Melbourne exists. <laughs> I got it. It was great. They're both great comedy cities. I was in Melbourne earlier this year, and I think it's maybe the most amazing comedy city in the world. Mm, absolutely. They have the comedy festival there, so it's absolutely true. And, and the weather there incredible. sucks, so there's really not a oh. lot to do other than to make jokes. All the time? It wasn't just the, the two weeks I was there, it's always that bad? Well, it's, it, it's different kinds of bad. The line about Melbourne is that there's four seasons in a single day, and it's true. Oh. Lovely. Well, so it's, it's, you sound fantastic all the way from Australia. I'm talking to you on a 3GS iPhone, uh, which I have because um, the head nerd of the world, uh, Steve Jobs, decided we should all have them. And everything he decided seems to happen or seems to happen. So it seems fitting here on Tumble Vision, which is a show which it's a pretty salon-like show where we have some of the leading thinkers and doers in the connected world uh, talk about the ways they're tumbling and making connections happen. Uh, Steve Jobs is sort of, he's not ground zero, but he's pretty important <laughs> node of, in it all that we should spend a little time remembering him and his impact on um, what we'll probably talk a lot about today, as we always do in the show, which is how do we get technology to support human needs rather than the other way around. Um, and I don't know if anybody, I mean, Mark, do you think anybody has done more for making something people-centered technology-wise than Steve Jobs? There's, there's no question that he's, he's going to be probably the first instance of what we'd call a tumble visionary because he was the person who connected people with technology. It's funny that I was looking through sort of all of the, the obits and the, the memorials that have been going on. And I realized this morning, with the exception of a friend of mine here, we've all forgotten about the laser writer because oh, in the world where there are laser writers everywhere. But he's the person who took this piece of equipment that cost a couple of hundred thousand dollars. I used one when I was in university and made it $4,000 and plug it into your local area network, which was also another brand new thing. And so everyone could do desktop publishing. And we don't even think about all of our printed material now having this extremely high quality and it's available everywhere to everyone. Well, you know what? That's something else he did. And that actually may be more important than the iPhone. Yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about, um, you know, he passed away yesterday. And um, in case you're one of the people who hasn't heard this, depending depending on 
Right. Well, depending on when you listen to the show and, and if you're not joining you know us what? live. But. You know, Deb, just, just I hate to say this, but just before we get into your brilliant insight, I want to let everybody know we are starting a really exciting thing for us here at Tumble Vision, which is this is the first day of a demo uh, sponsor run by Hover. So if you love the show, all 80 now one episodes that we've brought to you, some of the best, most interesting stuff about what's going on and how we can make the world better to be one of the crazy ones, please support our fantastic sponsor hover, which does really simple, easy domain name transfers and purchases. Uh, and if you use the code tumel, T-U-M-M-E-L, you'll get a discount. And especially if you click through our site, tumblevision.tv, that, that's how that'll work. And you've, you've used it, right? I mean, it was totally, like, I use it. I've used all... it. It takes one minute. It, it takes one minute. They are, I, and I and I love them for this very personal customer service, proactive customer service. You will never lose a domain name with them. I shouldn't say never, but they are very proactive about double checking with you. Um, they won't let it slide into the ether. So, like geeks, domain names are our crack, and we want to help support your habit and our habits, and uh, just make it easier because. <laughs> You don't need to help, like, really sexist, annoying GoDaddy with a bad user experience. You want, you know, if you're looking for an alternative and you want to support the show, we've got 12 weeks. Please, uh, it'll make a difference. It's kind of like the opening weekend, the equivalent of a, of a movie. Like, if you make – do some of your transfers now, it'll make a big, a big difference for us. So we're just letting you know that. Thanks to them. And now back to um, – or Steve Jobs' remembrance, and Mark Pesci was just reminding us. But the laser, I think we're going to probably end up remembering many things. I mean, he's, he helped make so much happen. It's kind of hard to even imagine a list of that many things. I mean, what were you about to say, Deb, about what really affected you from him? Well, I was, I was thinking last night about his impact, as everyone was across the digital landscape. And it dawned on me on how many things I would not have accomplished or done if it hadn't been for Steve Jobs, because I too, I was in the desktop publisher. I hadn't done graphic design. I desktop published, I digitally desktop published a guide to New York city in 1988 when digital meant that I printed out the sheets on laser writer to paper, glued them onto boards and shipped them up to Canada for the Canadian printers to take digital pictures of them. (laughs) You know, that's the short story, but you know, that, I mean, literally it's hysterical. Um, FileMaker Pro database. I became a data, I did database because, because, and I'm not, I'm the, I'm the creative graphic designer because FileMaker was easy to use. I started doing stuff on the web, you know, with some Apple, you know, you know, hypertext, all things with an understanding that, that left and right brains can work together and, and make bringing technology to the masses in a really in usability. And that was always the big difference between, you know, the, um, Apple and windows operating systems. And what I love about that, which is very Tumalesque, is the quote, one of the quotes that has been going around this week about Steve Jobs is that, you know, one of the classes he took before he dropped out of college and after six months was the fact that he took an ethnography, ethnography class and learned about typography. And it was, you know, I believe it was a calligraphy class. It was a calligraphy class, and he also took later some sort of ethnography class. And Fantastic. Only, only, behind, only backwards did he see the links and how they came into play. So it really, I know, it warms my heart to think that, uh, you know, for all those engineering coders who think it's all about algorithms, that you can learn from the liberal arts as well. My first and only big company that I ever worked at was at Apple. Mark, did you work there? I worked at Apple in 1993 as a consultant. It was not a good time because that's when Apple was basically falling apart. And I left. The consultancy ended just as they were about to lay off. I don't know how many thousand people. I was working in a little satellite up in Berkeley rather than on the campus in Cupertino, which was nice because it was sort of away from all of the chaos that Apple was dissolving into. Scully was getting ready to leave. Oh, God. I was there after him when thousands were laid off in, at the bottom in 96 when um, the, literally the laptops were bursting into flame. Uh, yeah. <laughs> literally. Kevin, you also worked at Apple. I did, yes. I, I worked there from 98 to 2003, but I was involved with Apple um, before that um, when we was doing multimedia stuff in um, 1990 onwards. 
So it was we, we did a lot of work with Apple um, UK and with Apple Europe and got to work with a QuickTime team as well. So um, definitely big chunks of my life heavily influenced by Steve Jobs too. It's were really you, amazing. Were you there for any of the time when he was there, Kevin? Yes, no, I was I was there for the first five years of him being back, yeah. He, he, he came back in 97 and I joined in 98. And so, a week after I joined, he, they launched the iMac. I was there right before that happened, and I used to describe Apple at that time. I was part of the team that worked on early webcasting and the first websites for Apple. And I used to describe Apple at that point as, as the Internet without a search engine because it was so chaotic. Mm. It was full of brilliant people. I mean, the, some of my favorite people are almost always – I feel like I went to school with people. It's like the graduate school of mm. Silicon Valley when you meet another Apple alum. And, and when you say talk about the liberal arts, it felt to me like an amazing campus – which is what they called it, of uh, just incredibly interested people, often people who wouldn't have worked at a big company if it weren't for Apple. So part of how it became chaotic when I was there is everyone was making and just building all kinds of stuff. So, Kevin, I'm curious, after he came back, it seemed to the outside world, because I, I knew mostly stuff through the press, and my ex-girlfriend was the Apple reporter for the San Jose Mercury News, it seemed like everything clamped down, like, 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 like just... You know, like the Iron Curtain came down and you couldn't, people wouldn't talk to the press and he killed off a lot of products. And was it, did it feel um, hierarchical and very intense? I mean, what did it feel like once he started to change the place? Well, see, the thing is, I, I joined, as I say, I joined there in April um, 98, which was after he'd come back and a lot of that had happened. So even though I was you know, recruited in 97, um, because I had to wait for a visa, I didn't join until after he was back and a week after they launched the iMac, which was a complete surprise to me. Um, so that security curtain was in effect and that was definitely part of the, the modus operandi. Before Apple had leaked like mad and people would, would you know call up the press or call up um, websites and tell them what was going on inside, um, after that, people got fired for doing that. I remember um, somebody leaked uh, some, one of Jobs' speech to, to Dave Weiner and got fired for it. Um, and there was definitely a huge clampdown on um, being seen to speak in public um, because they wanted to make sure that, the, that, that they, they kept the element of surprise for the new hardware and the new things that were coming out. Yeah, yeah. It was like leak fest. It was sort of a, a reporter's dream before he was there. Cause I'm, was I'm sure. I mean, remember uh, one of one of her big breaks was writing about Gil Emilio decided this is so an apple. Mm. I mean, everything about that guy was so an apple. He wore a tie. Oh my God, he couldn't handle skirt man. Different Jeremy, the guy in the cafeteria, always wore a skirt. He just was freaked out mm. by the place. And uh, what was the other thing? Oh, he wanted to put an executive bathroom in. He wanted to be like other. <laughs> <laughs> Mark just fell out of his chair down under. I, I'm, just because the whole idea of an executive bathroom and Apple, they're just so incongruent. There's just no way. That's to, right. Like, well, I, I feel like, it. yeah, totally. I feel like inserting here, for those of you listening to this podcast 20 years from now, there was a time in the universe when there was a hierarchy at organizations and executives had their own bathrooms because they were not allowed to pee with their employees. <laughs> So, Kevin, so, did it feel? Did it feel so? Other than you can't leak, did it feel hierarchical? <laughs> because because a lot of what people I think imagine around hierarchy uh, is they think, oh, that's what makes stuff work. As long as you know, how are you going to have coordination? Everything's going to be all over the place if we don't have it clamped down. And the reason that things worked and the trains ran on time once he came back is he made everybody do what he wanted. Is, is that what it felt like? I think there was some of that. I mean, there, it was, I'm not sure it was hierarchical as much as monarchical. I, you know, there was Steve at the top, and then, <laughs> then there were all these oh, true. Yeah. barons who had been feuding with each other over the direction of the company, um, and suddenly they had someone to, to sort of uh, hold court and decide who, um, who got to do things. So um, there was certainly a lot of that going on. I, I, one of the things I remember was in the QuickTime group where I was, we set up a wiki so that we could talk about future products, um, rather than emailing Word documents around because we were getting fed up with that. Um, and my um, manager came in and said, this wiki's great, but we've got to put some security on it because I don't want the other group to see what we're thinking. Um, and that was very much the Apple worldview. The, the QuickTime group didn't want the apps group to know what we were, oh, we were planning because that was something they wanted to, you know, um, feud about at the VP level. So there was definitely a lot of, um, you know, parallel things going on at once. And I also got the sense that there were lots of sort of, as you said, there were, it was like a, a university campus and there were all these separate groups going on doing different things. 
So I made, after I, you know, I was working on QuickTime and video, and I um, found that there were at least five separate groups working on video compression that I found over the years. As I, as right. I no, what would happen is you'd be in a meeting, sometimes with a company outside of, of Apple, and someone else inside of Apple would be in this, would call in, and you'd be like, I didn't know you were working with these same people, this other thing. <laughs> I spent a lot of time trying to create a general, I tried to tumble them. I was like, let's have a general entertainment. Like, I'm just going to like make a list of everybody who works with entertainment. So we can at least sort of not at least know we're going to be on the call together or whatever it was, but it wasn't, we didn't have as many tools. We had the email lists. Um, but also culturally, I don't know how much that was encouraged. I mean, I don't, I, I feel kind of, both, I mean, I feel incredible loss and sadness. He had a huge impact on my life, like so many of us. But, you know, Mark, on the one hand, he cared so much about people and how they experienced technology. And the other, and he led Apple to really get the Internet and that kind of connectedness in a way that Microsoft missed. Yet there's something to me where I feel like, and this is maybe where it's too, too early to jump to this, I feel like he was never going to really get social stuff. And Apple, I don't really feel like ever will. Uh, but I don't want to put a damper on all the happy remembering of all the amazing stuff he did. It's interesting. There was an article in the New York Times by Matt By this morning that I read in which he pointed to the existence of the Apple stores and the Apple cultures. I thought as, that was great. Yeah. As an attempt to create a physical social space around a community of interest. And so I think that that part they understood because let's face it, you go into an Apple store, there's no pressure to buy anything. And yet those stores sell more per square meter than any other stores on planet Earth, right? So there's something about the idea of creating a social space because it's not really – I mean there are people in there playing with computers. But mostly there are people in there playing with their friends playing with computers in an Apple store. Yeah, to so me, the app, yeah, the Apple Store has always been about that. Go ahead, sorry, Mark. Yeah, no, no. So, there's, so there's there's something to that. I think with the 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 more ephemeral part of it, I think you're right. Uh, you know, they had a number of different projects around social media. Ping being one, it never really took off. They never really managed to make a deal with Facebook. Whether or not that would have been a good thing, who knows? They now have deep Twitter integration into iOS, so maybe we're starting to see where that would go. But they never really, I think, you're right in that sense. Were, they didn't organize their products around social. There was no idea of social sharing inside the iPhone or inside they the They sort iPhone. of tried with Ping, but, but my sense is part of the reason social wouldn't work with their approach is because um, as much as it's about user-centered design, it's very much a controlled experience. And there's a way in which once something's truly social, you don't have much control about how it's going to be done, do you? At least not yeah, as no, much. No. I, I mean, I would agree with you, I, but I, I think that there's a way to actually satisfy enough of both sides of that because, you know, you can uh, you can tweak every single control on a Linux GNOME desktop, and that doesn't make it a social experience. There's something else that really needs to be embedded in there. We haven't really seen, uh, I think, operating systems that are intrinsically social, that are intrinsically glued. What we have is a lot of apps sitting on top of operating systems that are running the same way they've run for 25, 30 years that have little windows into social worlds. But we don't have any sense that underneath the board there's this intense social layer, even on our mobiles, which should work that way. They don't. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't... I, go ahead, Deb. No, I was gonna. I was gonna agree with what with what Mark's saying. If we're gonna say that the definition, you know, of social, uh, a la, you know, the way right now at this instantiation and in time, sort of the Facebooks and the Googles and the Twitters are all trying to do social. It's really just one aspect of it, and we all know that it's all at its infancy. I think one could even argue that Apple gets. The personal, you know, we have had Doc Searles on the show in the past, and he likes to talk a lot about how he hates the term social. It should be personal. Uh, you know, the personal web, not the social web. I think the Mac... I disagree with him. I disagree I know, with him. I know you do, but, but he likes to use that word, and I'm just pointing out for a topic of discussion that I think the Mac gets the personal and the emotive in a lot of ways, and at least it had for me. It doesn't help me connect oh, yeah. to others. It doesn't help me connect to others, but... So I think we have to sort of... What do we mean by social? You know, well, in what context? I mean, you know, it, you know... 
Go ahead, Kevin. We mean social in a post-social media context of right. technology platforms focusing on how you spend time with other people through a technical device. That's what I think we mean. But right. And so in that way, I think they do it very well because I remember sitting in front of my Mac with other people in, in a way that I didn't with a, with a PC. I remember the Mac was the first one that had sounds when you turned it on or off and you could customize the so, Mac. So, so, Deb, let me you know. tell you a little story about the first Mac that I ever had. And I was working at a company. This is in 1984. So the Mac had just come out. And I this borrowed like the, it on. This is the Mac. I, just, I love these nerd moments. They're like, let me tell you about my machine. Yeah, the 128K, yeah. the Mac. And I this took it home been- and put it on the table and plugged in the disc. And I booted up a program that no one knows about anymore called Hendrix, which if you're an early Mac aficionado, all it did was give you a white screen. But as you dragged the mouse across the white screen, these amazing feedbacky guitar sounds came out. And it was the first interactive sound app. And I lost my mind, immediately called one of my friends, said, get over here. And he did. All right. And that was it. It was the social experience of the two of us in front of this Mac playing with this 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 interactive app that we'd never even thought about before. Right. So, so that's that sort of what I was getting. Right. Yeah. That, that was what I was getting at. There's a lot of ways for us to think. Of, I think I think Heather, to your point, we take it so for granted that so many of the shared screen experiences that we've done over the years, looking at YouTube videos together at a party and other things. I'm not saying they couldn't push the envelope more. I don't know if they would have happened without a lot of apples. I mean, uh, no, you know, no. Let me let me be clear about what I'm what I meant yeah. by that. Okay, there's no question that we wouldn't have nearly the experience that is that we're calling social as this other kind of layer right. without the phenomenal way in which all the Apple products, which are designed incredibly socially and emotionally, absolutely, but they're designed to the product that way. So what I'm talking about is a new layer of what Mark is talking about in his new book in the next the next billion seconds right. about this massive interconnectedness of humanity. So, I mean, if you go all the way back, you have the, the semiconductor, and then you yeah. have the mouse, yeah. then you have the, yeah. then you get jobs and everything that they built there. On top of that, the, the social layer that we think of now that's sort of in its infancy, whether you think of RDO, Facebook, Twitter. Now, right. yes, those that's things it. are a new layer within that, of course, only exists. No one would have made any startup or any of those companies that do any of that without Macintoshes. It's just yeah, and, it's amazing, also, right? And all of that stuff. There's just no way. So for sure he yeah. got that relationship himself to product as an emotional, aesthetic, uh, social, shared experience. But I don't think Apple understood fundamentally how – no, no. I mean they were able to benefit plenty by uh, – Oh, I'll give you, you know, an example. Yeah. I'll right. give you an example how – They could how- have one. Yeah, I, 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 tell, you know what? I'll give you an I say this one worked with eWorld people, you know, like their early. Oh, I remember eWorld. I worked with eWorld. Case pitch AOL to Apple. They didn't want it. Like there was a lot of early online connected stuff that just never worked there. So, what, what you, you want? You wanna, what's your example? Yeah, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking that makes perfect. You know, I agree with you. That layer isn't there. I was just adding sort of uh, the fact that I think a lot of us, uh, present co-hosts included, tend to think of social as only, you know, one thing. We all have to remind ourselves that there's lots to it. But I think you're right. Just think about how Apple branded itself from 84 on. And I think that whether Steve had been on or not, the next wave of that social layer is something that they're not, in the same way that Google is not, equipped to do as they stand today. Why? Because if you think about it, they were all about bringing out your inner genius. They made, I was able to do beautiful graphic design. I was able to design you know, a nice page. I was able to make music. Yes, it was is. all about bringing out the creative in you as an individual. Their ads were all about individual geniuses. To this day, the iPhone ads and the iTunes ads are all about you listening to music. So it's about bringing out your creativity. And then the question is whether they could and would be able to bring out the collaborative creativity. And I think that's where you're going. And I think you're spot on. I think they, they, they you know, that's what Apple always felt like to me. It felt like they're making me better. And right. this, 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 this is very, very Cathy Sierra, yeah. It, it's very, yes. you make me do better things and you make me powerful in that way. But there right. was, there were some threads of, of communication and networking as well. Um, you know, there was, there was Apple Link, there was Apple Talk. Um, and, and the thing that, that Jobs did when he went to Next 
was very much focused on that piece of the, of the net, network computer and communication and made the first email client you, um, that was um, you know, usable by normal humans. Um, there's a nice piece from um, Tim Berners-Lee um, talking about this that, that, he, that he wrote saying, when the next machine turned up at work, um, everyone was amazed that, that the email account just worked out of the box and people could talk to each other using it that way. Um, and it was that fluidity that, that, that led him to try and do the same thing for documents, which led to the web, uh, because there was the assumption that the computer was on the network. So the next was that sort of next stage of the vision of connecting stuff together. And that there were bits of that that, that sort of reappeared in Apple over time. Um, when uh, iChat was launched with the... Um, bonjour stuff that let you find people nearby and talk to them without having to configure it at all. I think that was a, a sort of marker for that. Um, Can I point and, out to you, Kevin, that none of that wait. stuff really took off? <laughs> uh, hang on. Well, let me, you know, let me finish. Okay. Um, the, and the other piece of it that, that was built there was the um, the iTunes music sharing, which meant that you could always see the music of anyone near you who, who had iTunes open. Um, and that was, it, but that was fighting uphill against the Apple culture. And, and right. that was, that was, it was hard to sustain that. Yeah. So Mark, um, I always want to make sure we stay, staying with the pace of the show that we get into, into your work as well. I mean, was, was, was he, and was, was Apple influence in your decision to make the stuff that you made? Because your, your work is pretty socially oriented, it seems to me. It, it, it definitely is. You've got to understand. So I was a Macintosh developer from, well, really full time from 86 to 93 until the six months when I worked at Apple. And then I didn't touch a Macintosh again for another 10 years, which tells you something. Mm. But uh, in terms of... That was of the era. Work, that was the yeah, era. That was, that was a was. bad time for Apple. Yeah. When, when they got OS X in gear, I came back. What I learned, because I was doing a lot of network engineering, because my first sort of original background was as a network engineer, was learning a lot about Apple Talk. And Apple Talk, from a protocol point of view, as an engineer, is incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly elegant. It works incredibly well. It's meant so that people don't have to think. The network does all of the thinking. And I was able to take a lot of that work and then bring that into the work that I was starting to do in virtual reality, which then led to the work that I did with VRML. And that then became sort of an opening into working on the internet, working on the web, and starting to sort of understand what would happen when people started to work together. So I guess in a sense, the Apple work is way down there, very, very deep as a foundation. There's no question about that. And what has sort of gripped you in terms of like, you know, I, I first when I first met you, your life was all about VRML. And then you went in a more somewhat academic-ish uh, yeah. for well, a while direction. Yeah, what what would you say, to, to use a Steve Jobs looking backwards and connecting the dots, what are your dots that, that brought you to where you are? Yeah, I mean, it was at, the work that I did with VRML turned out to be useful for people who were making entertainment. And so it was pretty a pretty short order that I was brought into USC to start up their, the interactive media program at the cinema school in part because I was the first person they brought in who didn't tell them the film was dead, which was interesting. Apparently, a lot of people they brought in said, oh, you know, you might as well close up shop. Film's dead. We're going to conquer the world. And I didn't really come in with that attitude, so they gave me a job. And it was beautiful because because I started working with people who were working with media. Not only did I start to understand technology, but I started to understand audience. And that was the critical difference. And so... I understood the audience, and as I when I moved to Australia, again working and starting a program at a film school here, I started. What working. helped? What helped mm-hmm. you understand audience? Because that's well, what the, my my work is kind of about. But I'm a performer with them all the time, constantly talking with them. Well, well, so so the key was that when I got to Australia in 2003, it was clear, particularly because I I'd been writing about and watching Napster as it was formed and destroyed. It was clear that people were becoming a different kind of audience, that because they could share media, because they could connect and then share the things that they loved, that was music and then was starting to be movies and television shows, 
that the audience had a different relationship than it had had before and that this put different things into play. And so I really at that mm. point, once I understood this, in order to, to be able to give the producers whom I was teaching guidance, I started to intensely study how and why people shared things. And that led pretty clearly to an understanding then of social networks because social networks are the wiring under the map that describes why and how communities share things, which then led into this whole idea of salience. We share things because they are important, which then led into this idea that once we start sharing things because they're important, we actually start learning from one another. And then once we start learning from another, we start putting that learning into practice. And that's basically the spine of the book that I'm writing now called The Next Billion Seconds. It basically describes that process in detail. That we are becoming a world of constantly people teaching each other. Oh, no, we're already there. <laughs> but what we're now starting to see are the effects of the fact that we can teach each other almost instantaneously. When someone has something to share, it can spread across the planet in minutes now. Right. And that then is immediately put into practice. And that, to me, inherently changes the economic and uh, political assumptions of how we've all worked together because it's no longer a transactionally focused thing about separate things. Say, do you want this thing? I'll give you a thing. Give me a thing back. It takes time. And we're going to first talk about how much it costs and argue for a long time to see whether or not I want to give this to you instead of this just sort of like de facto, bam, here it is. <laughs> right, exactly. Or this de facto, wait a minute. I can go to you for that, but actually what I'm going to do is maybe crowdsource the getting of that, and I don't have to go to you at all, or you're going to be part of the crowd that's getting me that. And so we have different mechanisms for knowledge formation, different mechanisms for capital formation, different mechanisms for production because of our connectivity, our sharing, and our learning. So you call it even an information economy is maybe more of an understatement of it being just a sharing economy? Yeah, it's All a right, social so you just economy. gave a talk, a social economy. I just saw tweeting about a, a talk you did today called hypereconomics. Hypereconomics, absolutely. Yeah. What do you mean it. by so hypereconomics? Is this what basic, you mean? Well, the basic idea with hypereconomics is that what's happening is because we are because we are now pervasively connected. A lot of the frictions that were in the marketplace, that were frictions of communication, have simply gone away. So a really good example is Airbnb. It was almost impossible to arrange short-term rentals because there was no effective way to be able to connect people who had short-term rental properties with people who needed them. Well, now the web and mobiles come along and bam. No matter where you are, you can basically post a rental or get a rental almost instantaneously. And that's now completely disrupted the hotel market. It's also going to be disrupting the property market in a more general sense because it's only the first example of things that do like that. But that's housing. You can also do the same thing with transport, with Uber, which you know makes uh, yeah. vehicle fleets out of unused limousines in cities. And you can do the same thing with free time. If you have Zarly, you can pick up a job and earn some money. And so we have different economic segments that because we we're so well connected have now become incredibly fluid and so that's well, what the world I, because is we're so connected and on top of that what you're observing inside that is people are willing to immediately tell you what they have that's sitting free just like you're talking about apple talk making you make the connection here with uber with airbnb you have people saying yeah i'll, I'll put the information in there and i'll show you what i have what's hanging around Yep. Which people have to do. And what you're saying right. is people now just are doing that more and more by nature. Well, they're that's doing it by nature, but also because the barrier to doing it is... Right, but that's a big human shift to me to go, oh, my God, that's not just the machine. It's like us no. going, oh, now my default or it's, it could be a default is to tell everyone what I have sitting around instead of let me not tell anybody what's going on. Right. We have a culture of sharing like we've never had before and, it, and oddly. Whether it's you know and and the willingness to share stuff right is it's what you're is what you're saying in a lot of ways, um, but we're not all prepared the reward, for it. Because the, the feedbacks are now here and they're extremely fast, and so that means that it's much easier for us to learn that these things are rewarding now. And the, and you have scale like you never did. I hate to use such a businessy word, but you do because you could like you said you didn't have the economics before, but now you have access to larger groups of people and more stuff. So do you, it's right. interesting. Do you think Steve Jobs, as much as he more than anyone enabled all of this, he wasn't much of a sharer himself? 
He didn't personality-wise seem like uh-huh. a share. He seemed like a, I will let you all know when it's time for you all to know. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we have to be, we have to also, I think, separate the, the, the showman, the P.T. Barnum aspect, which was very much part of him. That he, that What he wanted to share was the surprise and wonder, and he got very good at that. You know, he really did understand how to surround what he was doing. You know, it was originally called the reality distortion field. Well, welcome to it. We are living in the reality distortion <laughs> Seriously. field Seriously. Um, but uh, so, so I think that part of uh, part of the secrecy was uh, was really his attempt to raise magic around the things that he was doing because he thought they were magical. I mean, there was no um, there was no guile in that respect. Yeah, there was there was no well, there, but there's also a very very practical business reason. Um, Apple yeah. is selling hardware, um, and the point where hardware is at the most profitable is when you're about to introduce the new model and if the, if you leak it three months early people stop buying the old model and that's exactly the point where your supply chain is working perfectly all the components are flowing through although and your cost of goods now anymore, your Kevin, because it, iphone it, 4 sales fell off in advance of iphone it, does, it doesn't work as well as it did but it was it was something that apple was getting wrong and other people had, had, had made that mistake hugely um in the you know around the time steve came back and, and imposing that um, barrier was was very much part of the the, the model there. Um, they, they 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 took it further than they needed to. They made they did the same thing for software where it doesn't make any sense to do that. Where you're better off actually telling people in advance. Um, but do you, the only time they would pre-announce hardware was when it was a new category um, and they wanted to actually have that effect on other people rather than um, on their own products. But a new iPhone model, whether it's coming or not, would, would be would be kept quiet. I kind of have to say, I just can't, like, you knew the second he announced he had cancer that he would die soon. That's not a, pancreatic cancer is tough. And certainly when he said that he was retiring, come on, it was imminent. But it's still surprising, which is bizarre. And maybe it's because he's such a daily, what he's made and his sense of who he is is such a daily presence, at least for nerds, for sure, for me, in your life that you feel like. You feel like you know this person, like I guess that's what relationships with celebrities are like, who you don't know. You really don't know at all, but... Um... Well, except that instead of the relationship with a celebrity, because we are living in a built environment where his he, where his thoughts are literally embedded into objects, there that's is right. some, some concrete relationship there. It's not the same as the relationship with an actual living, breathing human You're being. You're right. It, it's it's two-way. It's completely fantasy. Yeah, you, no, you can... You can guess some stuff about him based on the the devices you're using, I guess. At the very least, you still appreciate that this person helped make things that were inherently about empowering people. Exactly. And I always appreciate that he, you know, ironically, as an anti-command and control hierarchy person, I actually appreciated that he was willing to be such a hard ass with design and stuff because I felt as a customer that he put me, me first making the experience good for me um, and ease of use. Like he kind of knew what he wanted. And, you know, in certain areas you need a benevolent or not so benevolent di- dictator when you're di- – nothing is worse than design by committee, right? And I think he probably thought of himself as a designer first and foremost in a lot of ways. I, I wouldn't know, but I could probably read some pieces. I so, mean, the, the, the thing we need to understand is I think even as we move into networks over hierarchies is that there are still experts and yeah. that the smartest people defer to expertise. And I don't think there was anyone at Apple who deferred to Steve because he was Steve. They deferred to him because he knew what the hell he was talking about. Right. He knew what he was talking about and he had he seemed to be able to get the best out of other people. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, really, out the expertise in others. Uh, he was the, the, the great designer uh, for a little while. He was he was the great critic, right? <laughs> he, he was the critic that would say, "This you're doing good work. You're doing bad work. Um, you can do better. Come back with something when it's better." Um, and that was, you know, he had a sense of what worked and what doesn't. But was you know, he inspiring he, to employees because yes. all I ever hear was how difficult he was to work. You know how mercurial he could be. You know, he was inspiring. He told as, those as, war stories, but he was he was very inspiring. If you if you hear if you if you know if you see some of the there are some of these speeches are up on yes, online that you can see 
where he's he's answering questions from people, but the internal ones were like that too. He would say, "Here's what's oh. going on." Here's, he wouldn't get them very often. It, it wasn't every week like like the Google guys do, but it was. Here's what's going on in the company. Here's what I think. Um, okay, ask me anything. Let you know what what's what's worrying you. And he would then give you what those kinds of reason responses that you you see in some of those interviews that people have been posting over the last few days. So um, he was he was very good at saying, you know, the, the one that I remember was. Um, that I think he repeated in public as well, but shortly after I was there, he said, the key thing we have to remember is um, for us to win, Microsoft doesn't have to lose. We need to stop thinking about this as war and start thinking about what we're building and not worry about the enemy. Because I mean, that, that, that is a that, huge that's mental brilliant. shift. That's, that's huge. That's brilliant. Because, so, because it's the opposite of, in a way, it's a bridge towards this sort of hyper economy network to world that economy that you're talking about, Mark, because the mindset of separateness, which certainly drove the industrial era and a lot of America culture for sure, this kind of me versus you, a business, oh, it's all a war, um, means, of course, who cares about the customer or the value of what you're making? It's just about beating someone else. So I win. Look at me, uh, which is often what people, I'm sure you've been in Australia long enough. I'm in Canada. Australians and Canadians just entertain themselves to no end, laughing at America uh, over <laughs> such things. You know, when yes. you're in a place that, that never wins, rarely does, except at the thing they care about, like, you know, rugby. Ice or hockey. hockey or- exactly. We've got, like, we've got our thing. Don't fuck with us about that. Everything else, <laughs> we think you're kind of crazy. <laughs> so to go from that set, that idea to say what's going to be the thing that's not about winning to say, no, we're going to focus on what we're going to make seems to me an amazing bridge to then a world that says not only that, how can I help you, right? I mean, think about making a great film and then thinking about making the machines that you make the great film on. I mean, they're both amazing, but I mean, as a business, it grows a lot more to help other people and then it changes your business, which is why when I went from Hollywood to the Valley um, and my, my work at... Um, Apple was sort of between, you know, the entertainment business and the, and the technology business at the beginning. And then when, you know, very early internet stuff and streaming media, just kind of like, I, I thought I wanted to make stories and I, I did, but I, I couldn't get over the idea when I worked in Hollywood that only five guys decided who got to see stuff and it would drive me nuts to make mm-hmm. something and not show it to anyone. So I didn't consider being an artist until I used the web like as a thing I could do because I, I would drive me too crazy. So I was pursuing how could I have kind of power to make decisions to make stuff happen. So I was on this sort of new business, um, you know, strategic uh, executive path at that point because I saw what happened to people, especially women, in so-called creative roles in the film business for sure. And they had it beyond no power. Uh, <laughs> you were there to make other dudes feel powerful sometimes physically, basically. It was your job. And that's what people talked about. Whereas once I got to the Valley and I was at Apple, it's a completely different economy. It's all about how do we empower their people. There's research and development, which there really wasn't so much of in the entertainment business. And there's also uh, developer programs, right? We're going to have funding just to support other people making stuff with what we make, which is just such a different mindset. It's well, it's interesting because Hollywood, I think, views the audience as a zero sum. That you know, there's only right. so many eyeballs, there's only so many seats in theaters, and we have to get product in them. They don't the even view them as eyeballs; they view them as asses. We, we want to get tushes yeah. and seats. Where's your right. tush? Fuck your eyes. Give me your ass. Yeah, it's, and then they, 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 they. You know, it's also eighteen to twenty-four male. You know, as if you can't possibly be a little more organic and emergent than that you know? well all that's gonna ha- it happens i mean you know i mm-hmm. started working in the music business then 95 and you can see what's happened with the music business it's just dwindled because met you know many 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 people including once there were these peer-to-peer network startups that completely disrupted them like napster they just never really took the, the hint and never yes. adapted except apple managed to cut deals with them right. Well, speaking of Apple in 95, one of my favorite Apple moments is Apple put together in 95 a, and Steve wasn't there then, right, Job? The Apple New Music Forum, New Media Music Forum. I still, you know, kept a bag from it. It met across the street in City Core Center of all the odd places. And listen to who was in the room, and we were talking about the future of music. It was about 100 people, 150 people, um, and more because people weren't paying attention than anything else. It was Peter Gabriel, John Perry Barlow, he was, Lady, Lady Keir. He's an Apple fellow, Peter Gabriel. Right. Yeah? Lady Keir and Dave Stewart. 
Mm. And we all sat in a circle, and it was an unconference-style discussion about sampling and stealing music and why Peter all, – all those musicians put their stuff out there. It was the one of the most fascinating – you know, discussions because it was so early in the music industry from artists who wanted to play around and test and open up their stuff. Um, and it was, it was just really interesting. And you think that it was in 95, right? It's, it's, it's fascinating. In a lot of ways, like you said, Kevin, they did touch on a lot of different things. But, you know, as a business, you got to sort of focus at some point. And the other thing that they're good at is longevity. The stuff that they learned back then and the stuff with the Newton is now at play with – and the stuff that's in Next is now at play with, with the iPhone and the iPad. So I think oh. one thing that Apple has that I worry about some of our favorite sort of social media, social networking companies is the understanding that iteration and longevity – and learning and discarding and getting better, you know, the patience to be able to have that is pretty interesting. I don't know if, if that's a sign of the times or. Well, or, I remember that Apple know. didn't start out with patience. You know, they, the reason that Jobs left Apple that's was true. forced out because they didn't have patience with the Macintosh. That's right. Yeah, and they they started only being educational, right? Yeah, and so so it's, patience is something that actually may take time for an organization to learn. So all of the social startups are so young, so so fresh, young We're, that it may be a big talking infantile. So so Mark, yeah. Mark, do you, do you mm-hmm. what do you think? Um, how do you think patience? Will we have more more? Will we have less patience? How will we as people be in this hyper networked economy? Do you think? And culture where you can get immediate something from from the crowd. It's it's a bit of both because I think that not only are there going to be more demands placed on us to interact on demand in real time, but there's also going to be more resources at hand to keep us soothed if we need to or to keep us angry if we want. That's so it's it's a really it's a give and take. Social media much more than the other media is a generalized amplifier. So it, it, it should say a generalized emotional and intellectual amplifier. And so you can put out, I need to be calmed down into social media and people will help calm you down. You can put out, I need to be angry and people will help you get angrier. You can put out, I need to be dumber and people will make you dumber. You can put out, I need to be smarter and people will help make you smarter. So it's very hard for it to, for, for us to say it's one thing or another. It's actually both. It's an amplification of whatever kind of self-awareness you're at. Yes, yes. If you if you want to be closed down and angry and, and mean, it will give you everything you need to do that. I mean, we, anyone who's spent any time on Usenet knows that already. Right. Well, you, know, you take yourself wherever you are. I think one of the things, and we lost that thread that you brought up when, um, you know, Steve Jobs decided let's stop focusing on the enemy and focus on ourselves, um, you know, and focus internally. That's a very emotive thing, though he probably didn't couch it that way. Let's focus on our customers and what we want to build is the equivalent of, okay, let's meditate. Let's focus inward. Let's not be only externally validated and let's figure out who we want to be and make the coolest shit we can rather than worrying about, do they like me? Do they hate me? Do they, I'm purposely saying like, you know, social media kind of like, love me, love me, love me stuff. And so, so, you know, you, the the more whole you are as a person or a business, the better you're going to be. Yes, but let me let me give you a little example from my own work. I gave a talk earlier this year at um, LinuxConf Australia, and I worked very hard on the talk. And um, it was it was the closing keynote for the conference. Linus Torvalds was in the room, which I thought was quite a coup. Cool, yeah, very exciting. But unfortunately, some of the slides that I used were deemed inappropriate for the context. They were deemed unprofessional because they had some minor but moderately suggestive material. And I actually was um, – I, I, I actually had to issue a public apology a few days later because it was becoming quite a storm of controversy. Wow. And, and this was around people – and it was a community of people who felt very strongly about it and basically used their social media connections to amplify their feeling and to keep the feeling going. And so 
even when you put yourself out there and I made the truest statement of this is what I believe and this is how I believe it and I'm not going to pull any punches here. When you do that, not only do you risk that, but you also risk the fact that you're doing it inside of an amplifying medium, which can pick up on something it doesn't like, amplify that and put that back at you. It's just part of the world we live in now. But what I learned out of that was how to sort of be able to take that hit. I've never had to take that hit before. You have to be able to take those hits. And the only way you can take those hits is by taking a hit. Right. It's hard. Well, yeah, that's part of the work of, uh, I guess, emotionally working on yourself, which I I believe is what you know, all this stuff is going to have to accelerate for people. I mean, I think that's the only way to deal with it. There's really right. no way around it. I mean, you can try and avoid it, but it'll just become very uncomfortable. <laughs> so <laughs> I, we only have, uh, I don't know, so much time. There's so mm. much to dig into in your, in your, both your work, Mark, and had jobs. Were you, how, were you sad? Like I cried. I cried yesterday. I cried some today. I- I actually felt just just very numb um, uh, afterward. I didn't because I knew it was coming because I knew he wouldn't step down from Apple until he was unable to work anymore, mm. which meant it was very close to the end. And so I was just simply numb. I think that it's uh, I guess I've been heartened in a very big way by how much the rest of the world who aren't geeks actually care. Right. That's the thing. It, That's so it's actually. Yeah, it's actually made me feel, I mean, I'm sad, but it's actually made me feel like, okay, good. That, you know, that he actually did aim for good and he achieved some and people can see it. Yeah. He empowered um, people. That's, that's why I think he has that impact. Well, in large part, I think because of his example of living very truly to himself in a very impassioned way, and he's a very emotional guy, and I think that had a lot to do with what I respect about him. You know, for mm-hmm. him, caring about something mattered, and we've lived in a world that for a long time has been dominated by a sort of, sort of usually white dude, but not, you know, saying, no, like, let's only, like, have a graph. I don't really care how you feel. That's irrelevant. Uh, that's That's weak. Uh, that's that's sad. Like, who cares? You know, let's dismiss feeling about anything. Whereas he was really clear that that was sort of the point. Often, yeah. and uh, and people are like, "Wow, how did he? You know, was he so successful?" I think that would be a big piece of it. I probably. Yeah. I mean, he didn't only have that. He had the whole. He had the whole package, and he was pragmatic, and he understood engineering, and, and all. I guess. I mean, he's not a coder, but he certainly understood it. Um, your project now that you're working on, when is, when is your book coming out, Mark? This is a good question. I'm working on it with um, Robert Tursick, who's in Los Angeles, and another amazing person who really has a strong background in understanding how media is evolving. And so we're probably 30% done with the manuscript. We're going to be out shopping it with my agent after he gets back from the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is another couple of weeks. What we're looking to do is really to make the book a very social experience by putting out um, a Kindle print edition, just electronic edition, quite early, and then working with a designer, a brilliant designer by the name of Dan Lynch. We want to do a book that's rather closer to the books that Marshall McLuhan did with Quentin Fiore back in the 60s. Mm, The medium is the massage and war and peace Mm -hmm. The global village, so we can do a book that's very dense with both images and typography that really takes our ideas and just gives them, um, gives them, I think, a, a taste, but also creates. And this is the important thing when you're selling a book in 2012, you want to create a book that's an objet, it's not just text because you can get text anywhere, but if you give people a piece of art, that's something they're going to want, and um, so hopefully. Very well said. 2012, we'll see sort of two versions of the book. We'll see an early print-only version, and then you'll see a later objet version of the book come out. That's the plan. So, so you put out the digital version later? First. No, no, no. We'll no? Put, first. put out the digital version first. Very much. Oh, I thought you said print first. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I should say the ebook. We'll do the ebook version hopefully the first quarter of next year. Fingers crossed on that. And, you know, get people reading it. Really, we have so many ideas we just want to share with people. That's the thing, that we just want to get the ideas out there. We want to build a book 
that is a beautiful object as well to express those ideas. And so we just think that there are sort of different vehicles for doing it. And, um, and it also meets people's needs because people still like books. I mean, I love my Kindle, but I still like books. And I think we want to be able to meet people at both of those places. And a book is in some sense a much more social experience, a physical book, than an e-book. Um, what about a networked ebook where you could see what other people are reading? And well, do you want co-creation in your book where people get to? I know it's something I'm I'm considering for my product to have other people, you know, change it. This is a really interesting question. It's an issue that I debated last year because I, I started a project when I was going to do an earlier pass of the book. I was going to call the book "Share This Book," and I started up a big blog mm-hmm. and got people mm-hmm. involved to sort of come in and, um, and and sort of participate in it. And I couldn't figure out quite how to make that work because in some ways I, I'm sort of old-fashioned enough that there's the idea of the singular sort of Renaissance author embedded in me, that there are ideas and I want to share these ideas and just let me share the ideas. And then once they're shared, we can have a discussion about them. And so... From my point of view, I sort of tried that and couldn't make that work for myself. So what I will do is we'll get the book out there and then we will establish all of the supporting infrastructure for people to have conversations with us around the book, whether that's a wiki, whether that's um, a website, whether that's whatever, to provide that. And also so that people can share not just the book, but share their ideas around the book, because we want that supporting layer to conform to the ideas in the book. And the ideas in the book are very simple, that people connect, people share, people learn, and then people do. That's it. All right? So we want to be able to provide the same supports that we're talking about so that it becomes a representation of the book. You know, I I, I found the same experience. The thing that I'm working on is called With, and it's much more about internal stuff um, around some of the same kind of thing. And part of what I found was, hey, if I'm writing about connection, I'd be sort of hypocritical if I didn't do it in the thing, right? (laughs) In the way I did it, do it. I'd like to see, I'd like to see more of that kind of stuff. I think it has to be, to to your point, what Mark, some of it has to, it it has to be in, you have to sort of pick your, pick and choose your places where you're going to have that happen. Because if it's all there, then again, then it just looks like a wiki without gardening, right? Right, exactly. You know, and so I'd like, so I think that's another part of the new skill set we all need to learn with this, right, Heather? It's like, what part is the static part? What part's the collaborative right. part? Where does it make sense? Where doesn't it make sense? Well, that's a lot of what I've been playing with yeah. in live performance, where right. it's expression of me and where everyone's there and having to kind of hold both, which is part of how, the, for me, the act of tumbling sort of happens. So in getting to the end of our, our time, maybe um, I'd love to hear from you, Mark, and maybe Kevin, you could go into this too, how tumbling, you know, works for you. Is it something that you do? Is that something you, that you think, um, we can have better tools to make happen? Like, how do you think we can enable, empower people to do that? And the same way that jobs empowered us to desktop publish and be the most expressive we can be. How can we empower people to be the best creators of connection we can be? I, I think that where we are right now, and this is a big topic of the book, is that we're in a phase of what I call hypermimesis. I put the word hyper in front of a lot of things. So mimesis means to imitate. Hyper means it's happening everywhere all at once. And so what's happening now is that we are all learning how to tumble because we're all learning how to connect, how to share, how to learn, and how to do. And that's really what a tumbler does. Right. And so what's happening now is that all 7 billion people will really the five and a half billion who are well connected but that'll be seven billion soon enough are all very busily learning how to learn from one another how to tumble with one another so i'm i'm both very optimistic but i also expect that the future is going to look very little like the past yeah are we going to learn how to be better evil people too Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. When you amplify both sides, you definitely amplify both sides, but you also amplify the ability to resist evil. So it's okay. What do you think, Kevin? I I, I think that's true. I think that um, and it it comes down to, you know, whether you're an an optimist or pessimist about people. Yes. Um, We got to we got to watch out and make sure that we're not. over amplifying the evil side and, and build the systems that that, that try and um, you know create the right kinds of feed 
back. But in the end, we're building tools, and it comes down to whether you assume people will overall try to screw each other over or whether they'll actually try and make the world a better place. And I'm naively in the second camp, I think. Do you think, Mark, uh, Mark, that because um, these are human-based skills at heart that they'll be some other new organization like single organizations like an Apple or Google, they'll come along that'll support this in the biggest way, or will it be a decentralized fundamental shift everywhere where you won't see this kind of dominating company? You know, we've certainly seen these decentralized uh, protests happening all around the world now in Mm. America too. I mean, we didn't even get to occupy wall street, but you know, people know that started to go on this week here in the U S yeah, I think that, that there's, it's a both and. There's going to be incredible capabilities for incredibly massive capital formation. Facebook is not the last example we're going to see of this. But at the same time, there's also going to be and already is so much that's happening in decentralized people directing, directly connecting to other people around things that interest them that it's going to be a both and. And that's the thing. The future is much more both ands than this or that. And so it will right. be decentralized, but there will be there will be things that because of their singular nature will persist for some period of time as things on their own. In the longer term, the faster things go, the harder it is for a single entity to remain cohesive without doing a lot of tumbling. And the more tumbling it does, the flatter it gets. Mm-hmm. So. I think that is where we're going to wrap our show for tonight if you'd like to stay with us or if you are listening to this show as a download if you come listen to us live thursdays at nine o'clock eastern standard time you could join us live in the chat room we've got a pre and post show which will hopefully continue with mark right after this show we're at tumblevision.tv and please do um do us a favor and go to itunes and let us know what you think of the show give us a review uh you can hate us love us whatever it is but information and your feelings we can use to help make it better uh if you'd like to be on the show or the people you'd like to hear on it, give us those suggestions too. And uh, is there anything we want you want to let people know about, Mark? Uh, I, I invite everyone over to my website, which is futurestreet, F-U-T-U-R-E-S-T dot co. And go take a look at uh, Hyper Economics, which I posted up last night and have a read through it and uh, see what it sparks in your thinking. I'm looking. I'm certainly going to go look for, looking forward to going to do that. I've always enjoyed uh, your talks a lot. I'm sad that you're in Australia, but next time I get over there, I'll get to, I know, get to have a visit. Debs, is there anything else you have going on? I know we'll be at Contact Con in a couple of weeks in New York at uh, Grushkoff and Vanessa Miamis's, uh conference about reinstigating the good of social, the social. Uh, do you have anything before then, Deb? Uh, nothing specifically. I wanted to quickly mention, and maybe I'll talk about it next week, that I had a wonderful run-in with one of the world's longest living official tumblers, Fivish Finkel. <laughs> no way. You met Fivish Finkel? I was he's sitting famous. A, he's very famous. So I'll, we'll talk more about that next week. So that's my tease. I was sitting at a restaurant, and I looked over. There he was, and we sat and talked for 20 minutes. I'm going to follow up with him as well. So that, that is was amazing. really fun. And I did some so research he del- on... How did he feel about you being all about the tumbling? He loved it. Yeah, he's also an old That's guy. He's amazing. like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's like, you know, he talked about Phil Silvers. He talk- it was fun. It was fun. But I, he was wow. in the middle of his meal, so I didn't want to bother him too okay. much. But he thought it was cool that we were reinventing it. So, you know, That's there you go. Amazing. That's totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. That's And you know what's karma? You know what's karma? Totally. That I, I had just left the Jewish Theological Seminary where I did about three hours of research on tumbling and another word, Bachan, which I'll, we'll talk about next week if we have some time, which relates to all of this. And I wanted to remind everyone who's listening live that next week our guest is Peter Merholtz, founder, one of the founders of Adaptive Path and coiner of the term weblog, who's been doing a lot of things blog who's been doing a lot we can thank him for that and he's been doing a lot of thinking about the connected age as he calls it so we'll touch on some of the similar topics again another good tumbler yeah peter he's one of my old school peeps from the early you know san francisco yeah. days and kevin, yes. kevin what if have you got some exciting uh microphone yes i want i want no, no, no. What I wanted to mention was Ada Lovelace Day tomorrow um, at oh. findingada.com, 
which is the, um, the day we all appreciate women in technology in public. And there's lots of Aww. stuff going on in different places. Um, but also right. it's the day you should blog about a woman in tech that you admire. And um, there's there's uh, tags and collation and all kinds of stuff going on around that. And, and there's events in... Who was Ada Lovelace for those who Ada Lovelace was the world's first computer programmer. Um, she programmed computers before they existed, and she wrote about um, Babbage's um, difference engine and analytical engine um, and was a, a, a mathematician and the, the daughter of Lord Byron. And was, she was so amazing. She didn't even she need so, a computer to exist to program it. She was she, magic. She was and she's witch. also the star of an absolutely awesome comic by Sidney Padua, um, which, you, which you should read if you haven't seen that. Available awesome. for the iPad tomorrow. Um, I just want to give a shout out to all the people I worked with at Apple. I'm really thinking about them a lot, including people I haven't talked to since then, like David Pakman or, uh, you know, uh, Adi Salop or I don't know. They're just really in my mind because it's been a bit of a sad uh, and happy moment because I've really realized, um, yeah, the geeks are my people and I owe a lot to Steve Jobs. So I thank him. So I'm, I'm glad we've been able to spend some time remembering him today. And I'm glad you guys want to listen. Um, we'll have show notes up on the site, tumblevision.tv. I want to thank our fantastic producer, Andrew Hazlitt. Hover. Producing the show for the, yes, yes, the new modern in Baltimore. And as our whispering wind is reminding me with a New York accent, our <laughs> fantastic founding sponsor but it's a demo people so we really need your support on this one so this can keep going uh hover.com h-o-v-e-r.com you can link through at tumblevision.tv and if you use our promo code tumbl t-o-m-m-e-l you'll get i think 10 percent off of your domain transfers which is pretty sweet and you'll be able to domain transfer super simply and they're pretty committed to never upselling you it's like a very user-centered experience so please get yourself over to hover through us remember them for your domain names and please let them know our referral when you do we'll be back here this week with peter merholtz and mark pesci it's been a delight anytime you want to come back i hope Thank it's a you. reasonable hour for you it is it's just coming on one o'clock in the afternoon not one thirty. Oh, great we can have people from australia on all the time it's perfect fantastic it's been great to talk with you. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next week. 